Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. Let me just say this, that I the other day I noticed that Steely Dan is coming out with a vinyl version of Countdown to Ecstasy. It's the second piece of vinyl that they're coming out with. And I think I might get it because it's the way I first heard Countdown to Ecstasy by Steely Dan. So this would be, I bought the record, I've had the CD, and now I think I might buy the vinyl again. Is this a bad habit, doctor? <laughs> well, isn't isn't record collecting a bad habit to start with? Oh, well, I su- yes, you're right. You know, in the general scheme of things, I suppose <laughs> throwing my money away on plastic discs is has always been a waste of, of, of the money and my time. But, you know, I like it. What were we saying before? The reason we're even recording right now is because we just realized that record collecting is a hobby that can be good or evil, uh, depending on, on how you approach it. Well, any kind of collection can be like that. You can get obsessed with getting just the right stamp to, to fill out your collection, and you can chase it around the world. I've read a book of essays by Jonathan Franz and the novelist. He's a birder. He travels around the world doing going birding or twitching, as they say here. And he was talking about how people will go out of their way to see a bird, like a specific bird that's hard to see and that sort of thing and how excited they get. And that's the weirdest kind of collection because it's just checking things off a list and having a memory and experience. It's uh, My brother and his wife are birders. And there's a lot of stuff that goes along with it. For instance, every midwinter, like around January, they go out to the Cape because there's a particular kind of bird that's out on the Cape that they want to see, you know, but in the, while they're out there, while you're here, visit the luxurious, you know, and they, of course, sample, right. they sample, you know, they, that's their winter vacation. They go out to the yeah. Cape and there are some pretty cool places that are open in the wintertime on the Cape, which is traditionally a summer place. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's, I get the adventure of doing things like that, but I am not as I am not going to become a birder. But I do find excitement in in collecting music. Well, one of the things that I found about this countdown to ecstasy is that Donald Fagan oversaw a new remaster from the original analog tapes. Okay, good. And the age old question: What was wrong with the original? version, right? I mean, we did do an episode at one point way back when, I'll link in the show notes about remasters and remixes. And I don't remember exactly what we said. So if we say anything different here, if you've been listening to us long enough. We've aged. Our opinions have changed. Yes. But if you've been listening long enough to remember that episode, don't blame us if we're saying things different. (laughs) Yeah. Because we don't remember anything. The idea that, I mean, this is all marketing, to say it's being remastered. What was wrong with the original? There can be limitations in technology at a certain time, right? Live recording, you've now got things to clean up tapes, as we've seen with Grateful Dead releases. Well, just like you said, if you can remember when we talked about this, Donald Fagan obviously remembers doing the original Countdown to Ecstasy, and now here it is 40 years later or whatever it is, and it's like, well, the technology, we didn't have those filters, those EQs, those... Those, as you said, the the, the techniques are, are, are better than they were now. Um, I certainly, you know, as a record collector, I don't want to think that it's 
for money that they're doing it. I want to think that they're making a better recording for their fans, which I'm sure is part of it. I hope it is. I hope this is a sincere desire to, you know, make a good product. They've already made it. They've already done the creative part. So yeah, but if then- they're going to remaster it, 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 I hope it's for us. I hope it's not just for the bottom line. Well, of a lot of it is generating it. new income because Steely Dan doesn't seem to very be a very popular band. They don't perform live because, well, didn't one of well, the, they do perform live? Are they still? Are, are both guys still alive? No, uh, the other guys. Why can't I remember his name? Wait a don't edit this out, please. Walter, <laughs> Walter Becker. Becker. My goodness, yeah. I'm I'm the Walter Becker here. I'm the one that's dead. Um, <laughs> Walter Becker died. But, but a the point years is, ago. I don't think Steely Dan's music gets shared on TikTok or anything. I don't think they've had a sync in a popular TV series, you know, like Kate Bush recently. So they need to generate income, and this is how they do it. And again, why? What was wrong with the original version? I think you mentioned recently that you listened to "Thick as a Brick" in a new remastered version, and. For me, we talked about imprinting recently. For me, that album is so imprinted that I don't want to hear a new version. I, I don't. Yeah, any change you'll notice, and you'll be you'll be disagreeable about yeah, it. Yeah, it's like why? Because okay, related but unrelated. I'm reading a book about Cezanne's still lifes, and I'll put a, a link in the show notes. And I've always liked still lifes because they freeze time in a way that other paintings don't because they're just the objects. They're not all the landscape and everything. When you see a field, you you can feel the clouds moving. You can feel the wind that's blowing the wheat, that sort of thing. Still lifes are very different. And an album for me should be like a painting that it's finished at the time. Uh, Do you think Cezanne, if he lived long enough, he would have remastered his paintings? He would have gone to the people who bought them and said, let me touch this up here a little bit. Would he have used ChatGPT to create it? Would he have used AI? (laughs) Restoring paintings is different, okay? Because then that's getting back to the original colors because colors fade and and all of that, or or correcting damage. But uh, I kind of see music as... I kind of see music recordings as something frozen in time. Now, classical music, you have interpretations. So Bernstein pretty much recorded everything in the symphonic repertoire for Deutsche Grammophon. Then when he moved to Sony, he re-recorded everything because, well, he had to generate some, you know, records for Sony. So his two sets of Beethoven symphonies, his two sets of Mahler symphonies, they're informed by experience and changing opinions. But with a pop album, that doesn't seem to make sense to me. Well, there's certainly Steely Dan is not going to get the band back together again and re-record Countdown to Ecstasy. But what they have done, I'm sure they have, is they go out and do shows and they'll do an album or two. They'll perform a full album. Delicate Sound of Thunder, which is a Pink Floyd album I just listened to recently, is uh, is like one of the first live recordings without um, without Waters, and they essentially do David Gilmour's greatest hits. But there's other things too. It's a very very good live recording. It just happens to be okay. it happens to be the tour that I saw in Philadelphia, so I, I like it right. a lot. Right. Um, but it's one of the first times that I've noticed they don't redo the songs. They're not exactly. What, what do we call them? A cover band. They're not a Pink Floyd cover band yet because they're still Pink Floyd. At the time, they had just released yeah. Learning to Fly yeah. and what other, whatever singles they had there in the late 80s. So they're still a real band, I guess. But um, I can't see anybody going back and re-recording. Roger Waters is re-recording Dark Side of the Moon. Right. Well, okay. Well, I won't buy it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I won't. See, that kind of thing is, is that 
Another performance of a Mauer symphony? I don't think so, because it's a studio album. It's an album that can never be performed live. That's why they're called recording artists, because they, <laughs> they are artists well, but in they're, recording. Yeah, but they're performing artists as well. Of course, so. but you know, when you refer to a recording artist, you don't just mean a generic guy who records. You mean a recording artiste. You know, yes. they are they're record Beatles were recording artists. I don't know if I would say the Rolling Stones are recording artists, I guess under some circumstances. But some people, oh, Frank Zappa, on, recording those... artist. Yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Because they, they I, go I in and the they Stones... do weird things in the studio. They go in and they, cre- they use the studio as part of the creative process. I think we could argue that for those core albums around Exile on Main Street before and after, they were recording artists. They were using the studio. They were creating and performing in the studio. It was, it was a thing. But the idea of re-recording an album, I mean, that goes even beyond remastering. And of course, there's nothing to prevent him from doing it. It is the law, I believe internationally, that anyone can record or perform any song. You can't stop someone from doing it. What you can prevent them from doing it is using it in a film, using it in a TV series, a commercial or in limited circumstances, using it in political events. Now, we have all these bands who complained about the former president using their songs in political events, but they didn't have the right to complain. The only time you can is if it accompanies a politician or a candidate when they're coming on stage or going off stage. What about bands who do covers in clubs? Doesn't the club have to pay rights for the... Uh... Yeah, that's called a mechanical no, royalty. Mechanical, yeah. And and it's, it's the venue who pays the performance rights. Now, they may take the money out of the performer's income in some ways, but the venues pay the performance rights. It depends on the size and how many minutes it is. There are like multiple segments for, it might be three minutes and five minutes or whatever. And the same is true for classical music. If it's under copyright, then a performance hall has to pay mechanical royalties. How much classical music is still under copyright, though? I mean, there's modern, well, if, yeah, for lack of any, a better word. Anything, music, anything remember, it's, it's death plus 70 years. So anything sort of post-World War II, 1950, so that's 2020. So anything from, up in, from the mid-50s on. Oh, okay. So there's some stuff there. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it there is still but the thing is you can't prevent someone from making their own recording. That's why Taylor Swift was able to make her own re-recordings of her albums. And and that's really interesting because that was spite. That was she signed a bad contract. Someone else owned the masters, which she was young and she was uninformed, and then she said, Well, I'm going to make my own versions, which are probably, I don't listen to her music, but they're probably different in some ways. They're not carbon copies. And she's gotten her fans to, I don't want to say boycott, but for the most part, ignore the older versions. And she's selling the new ones. It's interesting. There's a band here called Real Big Fish. They're a ska band from the 90s. And they also uh, lost the rights to their recordings. And so they went into the recording studio and recorded everything note for note again. Or a lot of stuff, note for note again. And it's actually not bad. It's, um, I mean, I'm familiar with the original stuff. And now as a result of this tumult in their recording careers, um, I've had to listen to some of the the remakes. And they're pretty good, but they still have that thick as a brick. What is that thing doing there? What Mm. is that? Why is that? Why is that guy playing one extra up? beat on the on the rhythm guitar why but maybe because that's how over the years they played it live that's what i was thinking they decided to you know play it that way 
The Grateful Dead's Friend of the Devil was pretty much a 4-4 country song when they first played it. And then they kind of adopted this sort of reggae-ish rhythm in later years when they performed it live. Now, it's a live band, so it's a little bit different. But, you know, it's one of their popular songs. It's on, you know, one of their popular albums, uh, American Beauty. But they did change it. And if you listen to Dylan live, he changes the way he performs a lot of songs. You were just telling me that Dylan was in Japan and he did, uh, what did he do? He did not fade away? He did Trucking a couple days ago, and he did not fade away last night. This is today. We're on the seventeenth of April, and I've heard some audience recordings. And as I said to you, Trucking, his voice didn't sound great. The audience recording was poor, but it didn't really fit. But not fade away sounded really good. It was with acoustic guitars, so it wasn't like a rockin' song. It was like a shuffle, and it was like a a roadhouse acoustic type song. Low key. What it was low key though. Yeah, 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 and. So I think both of these are in his book, The Philosophy of Modern Song, and it's very possible that for, you know, in the future performances, he'll be playing more of these songs that he talked about in the book. To help sell the book. I don't think he needs much. But what's the connection? I mean, it's those songs are in the book. I don't think he's saying, by the way, here's a song from my latest book. Well, no, I'm sure he's not saying that. He's not but. saying anything because he rarely talks to the audience. Maybe they're selling the book at the merch table. Probably not. Oh, yeah. Probably not. Hey, you heard trucking. <laughs> you heard not fade away. Now I read. I think it's more that he's yeah. he's now the eminence grise of popular music. And I think he's wanting to show kind of like someone who's collected old folk songs. He's wanted to perform these things as a way of saying, these are my influences. These are important to me. Because he doesn't just pick a song because he likes the tune. There's a lot more going on when he covers songs. He doesn't cover a lot of songs when you think about it. No, I suppose not. It's not his style. I mean, he did do all the Frank Sinatras and and that sort of older music, but that was the exception. Does does he do that stuff live? Does he do much of that? Yeah, he did. He did the first album when he toured, he did about a half a dozen of the songs. And then after he released the triplicate the triple album he put a whole bunch of songs into rotation a couple of times when i saw him here he was doing those songs and they're really good live funny that um you know we talk about reproducing songs it's like standards are reproduced all the time everybody interprets them and yet nobody has any nobody minds it's like play ain't misbehaving i like that song and they anybody can play ain't misbehaving and so but you can't walk up to any band and say do honky-tonk women you know, because there's a way we expect honky-tonk women to sound. And if you don't do a cover version of it, I'm going to be disappointed. Or maybe it's a matter of, well, maybe it's a matter of, of the sophistication of the audience. <clears throat> I don't know. I mean, I would definitely say that people who like standards probably have a little more sophistication than people who like Grateful Dead music. <laughs> but I, that would be rude of me to say that, so I won't say that. But I mean, people who listen to standards like to hear the interpretation. That's the fun of it. But... The fun of it for rock fans is I want to hear it exactly the way it is on the album, but I want to hear it really loud with the exact same guitar solo and that sort of thing. So it's a very interesting division. There. Now, I was thinking about this the other day when I was listening to a Brad Meldow album. One of my favorite later Brad Meldow albums, which is called Blues and Ballads, and he does an extraordinary cover of the Beatles' And I Love Her. And... The only time I saw Brad Meldow perform live a few years ago in Manchester, he played that live. And it's a real, it's a long song. It's like seven or eight minutes on the album. In the same performance, he did Nick Drake's Riverman. 
his covers of Radiohead songs are much better than the Radiohead songs because you don't have the whiny voice. <laughs> well, yeah. He does exit music for a film. He does Wonderwall. He does everything in its right place. He does a lot of covers of things that people don't cover. Well, what was the album that came out over the summer that I thought was pretty dandy that he did a bunch of covers? He did one last year, which even had Yes's Starship Trooper. Yes. And he a, did a, Yes songs. He did some yeah. Yes songs. Yeah, because he was really into prog rock. But he doesn't really do the kind of covers that most people do. Well, no. Who would cover Yes? Why would you cover Yes? Jazz musicians do like On Green Dolphin Street or Ain't Misbehaving and that sort of stuff. And he doesn't do that. And I'm just looking. Here's another Knives Out, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover, Smells Like Teen Spirit. I mean, Smells Like Teen Spirit for, you know, piano, jazz piano, solo piano. It's got a... It's Interesting, yeah, it's some interesting chord changes and, you know, I mean, sure, I'm glad somebody's doing it. But anyway, I guess And I Love Her kind of turns it is a standard. So maybe some early Beatles stuff is kind of standards, but we don't have standards anymore. I don't know anybody who does like, but you know, but, we don't have songwriters who just crank out songs for people to write. Oh, of course, anymore. that's how most pop music is written. But I'm thinking standards. Right, but they're not famous for doing it. We don't. They're not household names. We don't have Cole Porter's and George Gershwin. Standards become standards because people cover them, right? Right. Yes, I guess so. And yeah. they're not going to be standards if it's blowing in the wind that 17,000 people have covered. They're going to be standards when jazz musicians cover them. That's hmm, the thing. Hmm, hmm, hmm. Brad Maldow does an interesting recording of Jimi Hendrix's Hey Joe. And so the, the standard bit is when it's altered, right? It's not just a standard's not a cover. A standard is something that's it's generally they're not vocal tracks, right? And they're kind of twisted in a way. Well, I always think of a standard as here's the song, here's the words, here's the music. Do something with it. Rather than, it's not the performance of it, it's the essence of the song. It's the song. You know, you have to play it a certain way in order for it to be recognized, and then you have to play it in a certain way that you put your own stamp on it. You know, I mean, I, I like a lot of jazz piano players who do that, Marion McPartland, people like that. And it's fun to hear how they interpret a standard, but you're... You know, now that I got, what does make a standard? Maybe we should have started this episode with, what makes a standard? Because we don't have them anymore. Well, let's ask Wikipedia. Oh. Wikipedia says, a standard is a musical composition of established popularity considered part of the standard repertoire of one or several genres. Hmm. And talks about subjective, but these can be identified by having been performed or recorded by a variety of musical acts, often with different arrangements. Well, then I guess Smells Like Teen Spirit is a standard. What was I watching the other? Plus, you know it. Plus, you know it. And you're not a guy I don't know it. who is very familiar. I don't know the music. Oh, I only it. know it because I saw the title. I wouldn't recognize the music. Oh, okay. I can't remember what I was watching the other day. It might have been Succession at the, at the end of one of the episodes had a song by Peter, Paul, and Mary. And that made me think, of course, of Samson and Delilah mm -hmm. that Reverend Gary Davis did. And if I had my way. Right. And Peter, Paul and Mary was the finger snapping, you know, village gate version with the, the triple harmonies and stuff. And the great story is that even though Gary Davis didn't write the song, Peter, Paul and Mary gave him a whole bunch of money for royalties from them performing the song, which enabled him to buy a house that he'd never been able to afford. But 
the standard there is something for solo blues guitar from the Reverend being done by this white bread three person harmony group, you know, in a totally different context. And it's true that that as a standard gives it that gives it more of a standard quality, right? The fact that it's such a widely divergent arrangement. Well, that renders it a standard, I think, when you have someone like, you know, Reverend Gary doing it, and then you have Peter, Paul, and Mary doing it. And then we need, then you need Tom Jones doing it. And then now you're all set. Now you've got all your bases covered. Well, the, the Grateful Dead covered it as well. Okay. Everybody, so lots was, of people you know, have got, I'm covering it right now. But would you call Blowing in the Wind a standard? It well, doesn't seem like it. It just seems like a song that everyone covers. You know, yeah, yeah, see, I think that's a, that's the problem that we're running, that I'm running into is that the song is so modern and it's so, you know, I can't see, blow. I don't want Blowing in the Wind to be a standard, but let's face it, it kind of is because people can do it. Although it's, I don't know who would perform it now. It's kind of, it's kind of hokey actually, <laughs> you know, it's like, it reminds me of an animal house when John Belushi's coming down the stairs and. And some guy with a guitar is playing the question song. You know, I gave my love a cherry. And he just picks up the guitar and smashes him over the head with it. <laughs> Sorry. Because well, it's there, like, it's why are you playing that? There's this old guy who plays it live. His name's Bob Dylan. Yeah, well, and, he does. Well, he fact, wrote it. No one's going no <laughs> to be mined if the guy who wrote it does it. But he plays it with a totally different rhythmic bass than, than he did back in the day. And that makes sense because it's, what, God, 60 years ago. But hearing Dylan do it, as opposed to someone on the street singing it, I'd be like, yeah. yeah. I, I just kind of wonder, though, some minutes ago, if you go back in the podcast, Doug said, you know, do we even have standards anymore or something like that? I guess we and do. I don't, I don't think we do. No, I don't think we do, because no one's going to make an album where standards is anywhere in the title or the subtitle anymore. Oh, you're because yeah, it's that's just, true. It's not that's a term true. that we use, right? I mean, you could put out a record of... Covers. That's what you'd call. No, you wouldn't call them that, too. A tribute to or something like that. Um, well, there are occasionally things like that. I'm thinking of Coltrane's Ballads, which was standards. It was called Ballads because they were bluesy. They weren't, you know, the sort of anarchistic Coltrane. And they were all covers. And I guess the idea of Ballads suggested that it wasn't his music. Yeah. I think none of it was his. I'd have to look it up. But that's, that's interesting, too, because he did perform his own music and he did perform other people, other standards. So that's an interesting. Well, thing. not only that, his most popular album and his most popular song was. I was going to say uh, Love Supreme, but. No, he got a Grammy for that, I think. But that wasn't the popular one. It was My Favorite Things. Oh, right. That 17 minute riff on My Favorite Things, a whole side of an album. That was huge. It's funny because, uh, and I wonder if that's why uh, Outcast did a, a version of My Favorite Things. It's very similar. Now, that's interesting because standards, they have DNA that filters. And if a band is really moved by something like that, they'll perform, you know? It's like yes. we're into Coltrane, which is why we're doing this. If Coltrane had never done that, Outcast covering Julie Andrews would be like, what? Yeah, that, you're right. You're right. Interesting, right? It's a it's a it's a touchstone to Coltrane, and it's, it's also permission to play a song like that. Yeah. If Coltrane yeah. did it, I can do it. You know, if Peter Paul and Mary had written Samson and Delilah, no one would play it. But since Gary Davis wrote it, well, Gary Davis was best known as a performer, popularized it. Yeah. Well, yeah, we don't know who wrote it, but he's the one who gave it to Peter Paul and Mary, and that meant that. 
you know, it was a song that could be reproduced. In other words, it, it seems like if it crosses genres like that, and the Wikipedia thing said something about that, if it can cross genres and have different arrangements, if it's moldable, if it's, well, you know. That seems to, that seems to suggest that there's something about the song that is that lends itself so solid. To, yeah. It's, it can work in many different ways. And uh, the, uh, I guess, and again, I'll say it again, I guess they're not writing them anymore. Well, I don't know. I mean, the type of pop music that we're hearing now, it doesn't sound like it's melodically oriented in the same way. It's more into the beats and the hooks and the rhythm and the the loud noises and things. But maybe it's just a different style of songwriting and we're not seeing the songs that could become the standards because they're not the most popular ones. Well, that's certainly possible. That's certainly possible. I mean, we don't hear a lot of new music. As you like to say, you don't listen to new music. You've got so much of the old music to listen to. Exactly. And you know, so I, I should be running up. I should be I should be surrounded by standards, but uh, I'm not. <laughs> anyway, should we do next tracks? Yeah, let's do let's do next tracks because. Although, uh, let me just say, I, I'm sorry we didn't have a conclusion to what we talked about. <laughs> but that's the way it goes sometimes around here. So I recently got a pair of Beats Solo 2 Pro whatever wireless headphones, and they're really good because they stay on my head. So if I'm cleaning the house and vacuuming, I can listen to music because with my AirPods Max, they fall off too easily. So whenever I spend the 45 minutes vacuuming, I go into Apple Music and I see what comes up, what they suggest. And they suggested one of my favorite albums, Your McAlkinen's Qua from 1974. And... In some ways, this is full of standards. It's like, it starts out with his own song, Genesis, then I'll Be All Right, which I want to say is a Gary Davis song, but I'm not sure. It has I'm the Light of the World, which is one that Gary Davis sang. It has Police Dog Blues, which is classic. I just want to say that I don't like when you get these old albums and they put a bunch of extra tracks on them that just aren't very good. So I don't listen to the last few tracks, but the 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 core of that album, Another Man Done Gone, I'm the Light of the World, Police Dog Blues, really good stuff. So, Yorma Kalkinen's Qua. Yep, I concur. That's a good one. David Johansson has a documentary out. David Johansson was the original lead singer for the New York Dolls, later had a solo career as a rock guy in the 80s, and then invented the character Buster Poindexter, had a couple of hits, and became fabulously famous. Well, he's always been famous. He also did some acting. But anyway, David Johansson has a documentary out, and then he's been uh, promoting it. And I've been noticing on Twitter that there's a lot of David Johansson rising to the surface. And there was an interesting photo that someone posted recently of him on his first album tour, on his first solo album tour in 1978, stopping in at a record store in Milwaukee. And it is so 1978 record store. There's little portly fat gentlemen standing around with their thumbs in their pockets. And there's rock posters up on the wall and it just looks like every record store I ever walked into in 1978 but anyway there's David Johansson in the middle of the crowd and it just got me thinking that gee that first album of his was pretty good and you know in 1978 and later as he had this rock uh career he really was riding the wave of this uh well I want to say that AOR was getting really popular and AOR radio wanted some rock product and 
David Johansson provided it, along with lots of other people. But yeah, he was able to sneak his stuff in during this great rock era of the uh, of the early 80s. But anyway, I'm going to listen to his first album. It's simply called David Johansson. It's got four or five very familiar cuts on it, including Frenchette, Funky But Chic, Cool Metro. There's some great songs on it. So anyway, if you're a David Johansson fan, I'm sure you're going to see the documentary. If you're not, check out his first solo album. It's quite good. And that's my next track. This was episode number 254 of the next track. Thank you for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. You can follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget to support the next track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, so listener support is what keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.